Welcome to the Blister Podcast, a program dedicated to interesting people, the great outdoors, and a bunch of other stuff we like. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Claire Gallagher just won the Western State's 100-mile endurance run and did so in spectacular fashion. Now, normally, that is all the introduction we'd need here, since winning the Western States 100 is a very big deal. But in this case, there happens to be a whole lot more to this particular story. Because right before this race, Claire accepted an invitation from Tommy Caldwell to go to the Alaskan National Wildlife Refuge to raise awareness of, and opposition to, the current administration's plans to give oil and gas companies the right to drill in the coastal plain of the Arctic Refuge. The thing is, backpacking and mountaineering around the wild landscape of Alaska is a far cry from the way that professional runners would typically spend the lead-up time right before their biggest race of the year. So, in addition to diving into the details with Claire about her epic win, Blister contributing editor Maddie Hart and I discuss with Claire why she was willing to go to Alaska, why she runs in the first place, and how wins at Western States or her 2016 win of the Leadville 100 or her FKT of the Zion Traverse last year all work to create a larger platform to talk about the things that matter most to Claire. And if you'd like to take action on the particular issue that you'll hear Claire discussing in this episode, you can text 40649 to submit a comment now to protect the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge or follow the link in the show notes to this episode. It only takes a few seconds, but it's important. Final note, we actually aired this episode last week on our Blister Running podcast that's called Off the Couch. But Claire's win was so impressive, and the broader issues that we're discussing here are so important, that we wanted to air the episode on our Blister podcast channel too. So if you haven't yet checked out Off the Couch, you should. We kind of think of it as a running podcast for people who don't always or ever think that running is the greatest thing in the world and who maybe even sometimes kind of hate running. Anyway, see what you think, but we've already had a number of conversations on Off the Couch that I think a lot of you who listen to the Blister podcast are also going to enjoy. And now, here it is, our conversation with the new Western States 100 champion, Claire Gallagher. Claire Gallagher, how are you today? Hi, Jonathan. I'm great. Thank you for having me. Maddie and I are very pleased to be speaking with you. Frankly, my first question is, I'm curious to hear what you've been doing for the last 10 days. That's a great question. Um, <laughs> so yeah, 10 days ago was Western States. And then I've just sort of been like floating in a different, it seems like a different universe. Um, and I've, I'm slowly making my way back to planet Earth. Um, <laughs> I, I, you know, after an ultra, you kind of just like lose all sense of time and like, and your bodily functions in a way, like you've just eaten so much sugar and ingested so much caffeine, you can't walk and anything. And so I was able to go to the mountains this past weekend and, and uh, check out, which was really nice. Go off grid with a bunch of friends for the weekend. I went rafting um, <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, just uh, tramped around um, uh, kind of in Summit County. 
So, so I, I really can't complain. It's been a wonderful 10 days of beginning my bender month. <laughs> <laughs> so do you have kind of a set pattern post big race? <laughs> yeah. It's like, just try and wake up every day. Um, <laughs> and like be a functioning human in society. Um, it's, it's, I mean, anyone, I don't have a traditional job, which, which is, uh, super cool. Um, but even like, I can't, I give such kudos to people who show up at work on Monday morning, like the day after a hundred or the weekend after a hundred mile race. Um, it's hard to sort of like snap back in it. Um, but that being said, I don't know, I've done enough of them now that, you know, life goes on, which is cool. I'm like, okay, what's next? If we were to sum this up in a single word, would depleted seem to be the right word? I feel like that's a little dark. Um, maybe <laughs> one word I would use is like... Uh, Drunk? Yeah. <laughs> It's a little more accurate than depleted. Um, <laughs> um, like, I don't even know. Just, uh, ooh, just like swimming is a good word. Feels like I've just been swimming. And I have been swimming, actually. <laughs> like literally? Yeah, yeah. I love, I love swimming after, after races. It's, I think, really useful therapy. It feels really good after running for that long. Yeah. Yeah. I can't, I can't run yet. I mean, some people already are running, but I wreck myself pretty hard and in races and this was no exception. So how many days do you normally like take off after you run a hundred? How many days do you normally take off before you like start to run and get back into your training again? For, well, it's pretty common to take like a day off for every 10 miles you raced. So, but that would mean like only 10 days after an ultra and, and I'm going to take at least two weeks. Um, and, and I, I like went into Western States with a bum Achilles and it's definitely not any better after <laughs> running a hundred miles, go figure. And, um, I have a chronic knee problem and things. So I have like, uh, some, some work ahead to, to come back into, you know, running shape and, and just like you know, not being injured. You said that you often after, you know, a long race, you have this time, right? Where it is like a big sort of, it feels like a big recovery. And you said this last one was no exception, but how different was this one? I mean, this was a big effort for sure. Honestly, it feels different in a, a sense of like, <laughs> I went into this race so engulfed in the trip I had been on just like a week prior um, to the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, where I was I was pretty detached from the outcome, honestly, in almost like a Buddhist sense. And then so even winning the race was was great and is great. And I'm really proud of like completely wrecking myself and, you know, digging harder than I know I've ever dug in a race before. Um, but ultimately like, that's not what I was focused on. Like, and I was focused on the process and, and, you know, and it's sweet. Like I can, 
I'm getting press for the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge because I won Western States. So just like, hell yeah, this is, this, this works out. This is kind of hilarious. Like who would have thought that after like mountaineering for the first time in my life, I would win Western States. (laughs) So before we go on to talk a little bit more about your trip to the Arctic, will you kind of tell us like, how did States go kind of run us through the day? Like how did it all play out? Yeah. Uh, so like I said, I just went in really, really calm and like uber grateful to be on the starting line. Um, and I had this, the most glorious 80 miles I think anyone could have at Western States, the first 80 miles. I quickly um, settled into my own pace and no one happened to be around me, which is pretty rare for a top female runner. Like usually there are males runners around you. Um, but I was like right around 20th place, I think overall 25th, 20th oscillating between that. And and I was alone and it was just like, wow, this is so cool. I'm in my own little universe. Um, and it was an overcast day as anyone who follows States knows. Um, so it was not devastatingly hot. I was like genuinely enjoying myself, um, and the trail, the people and my crew and yada, 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 you know, it was like, truly delightful. And then as soon as I heard that Courtney was walking, Courtney Dollater, uh, the lead woman, I was like, oh no, like, yes. Uh, like, like, ah, like, oh, this means I, I like could, I, okay, I'm going to be at first, which means like, this is a race now. <laughs> and, and then those last 20 were like the opposite of the first 80. I was so scared. Cause then I started to pay attention to how close the women were behind me. Cause in those first 80 miles, I didn't even ask my crew how close like Brittany um, Peterson and Casey Lichtite were behind me. And, and I think they were sort of safeguarding me because they knew it would preserve energy if I wasn't scared. But as soon as I passed Courtney into the lead, um, it was like, okay, this race is on. I'm fully in it. I am like not going to let up. Um, And then, uh, yeah, mile 93, Brittany caught me. (laughs) I was like, there's no way she's going to catch me. And my amazing pacer, Alistair, oh my gosh, she's like, oh, there's no way she's here. She's easily 10 minutes behind. And then it, it turned pitch black, like, pretty quickly, you know, as it does, it just, you know, we had our headlamps on only for like a mile. And then all of a sudden she comes out of nowhere. I was like, (laughs) Um, I immediately stuck on her heels. And like, what changed in me at that time was, was pretty cool as an athlete. It was like, okay, I'm like, clearly an athlete. Um, (laughs) Like, clearly, I care about this, because I uh, stayed with her for a mile. And then at 94, there's an aid station. And I made the definitive and pretty risky move to not stop to get any like Coke or fuel, um, Coca-Cola, and, uh, and just didn't look back and ran completely out of my mind until the end. So it was over six miles. Um, and it's funny, I mean, looking back on it, the only people to have run faster than me in those six miles are Jim Walmsley and another guy this year, um, Patrick Regan. So, so, uh, the stats are like hilarious. I'm like, Oh, this is good. Like, glad I actually did run that fast. Yeah. It was so fun to watch along. Cause all of a sudden it was like, Whoa, Claire's on fire. Like she's mopping. 
Thanks. Kudos to her, like, catching me. I mean, she had to put in such a big effort to catch me. Um, yeah, that it was close, and that was fun. I mean, so, so close. It's arguably the most exciting female finish, like, in the history of the race. So it was, like, so, so cool for Brittany and, and me to, like, help create that history. And Courtney, for that matter. I mean, she had a, a, a you know, commanding lead all day. And, and she's a super class act. She was really, really encouraging when I passed her. So. Yeah. I was going to ask like, cause last year you had a pretty disappointing day. In 2017. Oh, it was ridiculous. I DNF'd, um, for people who don't know, I DNF'd at, I did not finish. I got pulled out of the race at L93, which <laughs> is actually ludicrous. Like, um, when you think about it to run over 90 miles and not finish race. And I was in third place at the time. Like I had been running really well actually. And then, um, my leg just like kind of gave out and, uh, and yeah. So this year at mile 93, I was running with, with Brittany and it's just like, ah, oh, this place is haunting me. Like <laughs> get me away from this section of the trail. Like I'm going to slip my wrist. Like what is happening? <laughs> so, all right, Clint, we got to talk about this because it's a little bit too poetic or something, right? Two very different experiences at mile 93. Yeah. It was like 93.5 right after, um, Highway 49, I spent, I basically was crawling two years ago. I crawled from like mile 90 to 93 over the course of many hours. And um, I had a Baker cyst develop behind my knee during the race, which is weird. Um, a pretty innocuous thing, but but running 100 miles, it can lock up your leg. Um, and then this year, uh, it was right before Highway 49 when Brittany mm. caught me. And then we went together over this, this next mile. It's just ridiculous. <laughs> and so was it actually a fairly easy decision to stop in 2017? It's like, look, my leg literally doesn't work. And then I'm just interested in juxtaposing that to this game on finish this year. Totally. I had been struggling for quite a bit with a, like my leg just feeling off um, in 2017 for like, I don't know, kind of a lot of the race. And then it got really bad, like around mile 80. And, and I just was struggling um, pretty hard until mile 89. And, and then my leg like would not bend. So I went from like a run to a walk to a limp Ultimately, I had to get down on my butt and was crawling uphill, sort of like dragging with my hands, like my body backwards uphill. Um, like it was, it was really like so sad. And, and my pacer, like God bless her, she didn't really know what to do, and ultimately got medical staff, and and then I was pulled. Um, so yeah, it wasn't. It was you know, it was it it was what it was. I wasn't going to finish that day, and then this year. This year, I thought about that whole incident for like a microsecond during the heat of the moment, but I had to focus so, so hard that it didn't really come into my mind again after I passed that spot. Like I was, <laughs> the amount of energy it took to to beat Brittany and, and to win, and it was, was completely all-consuming. 
you know, all I was thinking was like each step, you know, and, and can I go any faster? And when you were talking about the risk in not stopping at the aid station, was that just a momentary, like, here's a risk and I'm going to go or over the course of the final miles, were you in trouble? Were you like, God, I really might blow up right before the finish line. Talk about that. Yeah, I was running very scared, both like for my body and uh, just like in the prospect of Brittany catching me again. But it it just goes to show how preparation really pays off in an ultra because there was another aid station at mile 96 and my crew was there super dialed, handed me a soft flask of Coke um, Coca-Cola. And, and so I was able to, you know, like down half of it really quickly and then, and not look back. Um, but it's just insane. Like what you can put your body through when you have enough adrenaline. Cause I, I ran every step of this, um, hill. It's like a thousand foot climb at mile, I don't know, 97, 98. Um, and I wasn't, I just didn't even have it in my mind that it was an option that I would that I would blow up. I was like, you just, you just can't have that as an option. Like you just have to believe, you know, you can do it. I think all that too, kind of like just reiterates how much of a mental game, like ultra running is. For sure. I mean, you know, it says a lot, like it says, I probably could have been going faster in those, those miles, like 80 to 90. Um, but also I clearly had a little bit to prove to myself and, um, and that, like, I still have speed in my legs. Um, my coach, David Roach, really emphasizes speed work. And I come from a collegiate background of running, which is, like, very, like, speed-based. So so I was like, hell yeah, like, I've still got fast twitch muscle. <laughs> <laughs> Before we talk about your background, which I think we both want to know about, but I guess one question I have is, do you want to go back to States again? Or do you feel like you've, like, done what you're going to do there? Um, I think it's kind of early to say, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, I think a lot of people might be like almost like offended if I, if, if I don't know, there's, there's a lot of lore and history and respect around the race, Western States and defending your title is like a really res- like respected and, um, like good thing to do in ultra running. But, um, I'm also aware that I'm like not the most traditional ultra runner in terms of racing and I have a lot of other goals. So, so we'll see. So let's talk a little bit about this trip of yours. The lot has been made about like, what a crazy thing to go backpacking and mountaineering around Alaska right before Western States. I'm, and I've, you know, I've read some things where you talked about, actually, this maybe wasn't the worst way to taper down or something. And I want to know if you actually believe that (laughs) or if the results speak for themselves. And then I want to talk, of course, about the bigger implications of that trip. But, But first, as it pertains to a weird or unconventional prep for states. Yeah, I, I guess I'll preface it with, um, which wasn't mentioned in a lot of, or in a handful of the articles that came out right after I won. Um, 
most of the training, like 95% of the work for a hundred mile race is done a month before the race. So I, it was, you know, June, it wasn't even, it was like June 1st, I think when Tommy called me, um, to Tommy Caldwell called me about this Alaska trip and, and at that point it's like, well, the hay is, was in the barn. Um, you know, that work, like, I, I don't want to say that, um, I was like super reckless or that, um, you know, doing an Arctic expedition is the best thing before a race. It's like, it's just, you, you basically can't do too much before in that month leading up to an ultra. And, and yes, like this trip to the Arctic could be seen as like a little too much, (laughs) but I wasn't running. Like I was doing just something really different and it just was really lucky. My body held up. Um, but in terms of the specific training for Western States, like I basically started training for Western States in January, you know, and and it was January to through May where all that hay was put in the barn. Um, So uh, yeah. And, and the biggest thing I think us runners do leading up to a race, like the mistakes is thinking too much about the race or overtraining in that month leading up to the race. So definitely didn't do that (laughs) in a traditional sense. (laughs) So, Back in January and February and March, and you are trading hard for states. And, and I guess I'm just curious because when Tommy does call, how much this fa- seems like, dude, I, I, I've been real focused and set on a particular finish. Like this doesn't factor into the, the regiment. Yeah, it, totally. I, yeah, when I chose Western States as my big race this year, um, it's, it's my a goal. Like I actually didn't, I don't have another a goal. Um, and, and thus when it was, you know, June rolled around, I was like, I am ready. And I was really proud of of the work I had put in. And so it seems a bit ridiculous that I would have accepted this trip, but in a way, um, I tried to look outside myself. I thought about it for an hour, basically he calls and I had just done, a run across Joshua tree. So I'm like in my car, you know, pretty feeling really psyched with, with how fit I am and my ability to handle heat training. Cause it was like 85 degrees in Joshua tree. And I did it 37 miles traverse across it. Um, and I'm like, yes, I'm so ready for Western States. And, and he calls me and I was like, shoot, no, like, <laughs> how can this be happening? Like, this is such a once in a lifetime opportunity. Um, and I thought about it for an hour and I realized like going to a climate summit, which is what we did first, um, in this town called Fort Yukon and it's above the Arctic circle in Alaska, learning from the Gwich'in people, the tribe up there about how climate change is literally a a crisis today. Like their lives are changing every single day as the Arctic warms twice as fast as the rest of the world. Um, I was like, Oh, there's, there's absolutely no option, but to go, like, it would be pretty selfish of me to, to turn down this once in a lifetime trip um, for a race that happens every year, you know, when, when climate change is a, is a complete global crisis, you know? So, um, and I was like, go into the Arctic refuge, like twist my arm. That won't be that bad either. <laughs> Lo and behold, 
it was a completely life-changing uh, experience. So even if I hadn't shown up to Western States, like I wouldn't have had any regrets, to be honest. For those who don't know, will you kind of explain like what you guys were working on while you were up in the Arctic Refuge? Yeah. So uh, for people who don't know, the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge is the largest swath of public land in the U.S. So we all have shared ownership in it. Um, it's just east of Gates of the Arctic National Park, which is in it's all in northern Alaska. So it's like the very tippy top of Alaska. And and the Arctic Refuge, uh, which people call it for short, um, is home to the porcupine caribou, which um, the Gwich'in people live off of, essentially. Like, most of their food comes from the land. Like, the vast majority of their food is hunted and fished because um, a gallon of milk up there costs, like, 16 bucks. Like, they can't, like, buy food in the cash economy. Like, they have to live off the land. And they do it so beautifully, so eloquently, via traditional methods, you know, for millennia. And um, unfortunately, the Arctic Refuge is um, at risk of being drilled for oil right now um, due to the Trump regime. Uh, a, a provision was snuck into the 2017 tax bill to sell little parcels of land in the refuge, um, leases essentially for oil extraction. And they've, it's, the, the BLM um, hasn't done complete environmental assessments. The Trump administration has steamrolled through the process. Like the environmental assessment that was initially done wasn't even translated into Gwich'in, which is like the people's language up there. It's just completely um, egregious. Um, and there's lawsuits happening right now. Um, so the point of going up there is to tell the world in America that like, hey, we need to stand up to protect this. We need representatives from states in the lower 48 to stand up for this um, for this public land and the people up there. I mean, it's really a human rights issue. And Patagonia has been fighting this fight for decades. And this is just, you know, another another way Patagonia is, is trying to raise awareness um, by sending us up there. One of the things that I think is really interesting about this is that... Um... This isn't the case that, you know, Tommy calls and is like, let's go take a look at some important environmental issues. And you're like, cool, I've never thought about those things before, right? I mean, this, is, this isn't new to you. Correct. Um, just especially since I've been with Patagonia, um, I've just been woke to these issues. And I actually testified um, on behalf of the Gwich'in in January at a public hearing in Denver, um, or is February. Um, so I didn't even like know, I've never been there before. But, um, uh, yeah, I feel like as a professional runner, um, who spends most of my time outside, it's, it's my duty to stand up for other people who, who basically, you know, live off of the land. Um, I don't live off of the land like they do, but you know, my livelihood is in natural spaces. So, um, yeah, I was like, wow, this is a dream come true to actually be able to see it for myself. It sounds like it was an amazing trip and also like super productive and, and enlightening for like bringing a lot of light to, um, the issues that are going on up there that, I mean, a lot of people have no idea about what the Trump administration, how they snuck that whole <laughs> debacle in. Totally. And I think as outdoor users, you know, people listening to the show, like, we get so much enjoyment, pleasure, and 
and just and just value and purpose to our lives being outside and um and putting yourself in the shoes of other people far far away yet other americans right who also like you know have the same connection to the land honestly a bit deeper connection to the land um you know we need to stand up for one another um and 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 be active because the corruption that's happening right now is completely unprecedented and we cannot be desensitized to to how bad it is yeah because it's pretty bad so what can outdoor users and just everyone do to get involved and to help yeah the biggest thing it's very concrete um you can contact your representative so uh no matter what state you live in um you can either urge your representative to vote for a, there's going to be a a vote on a, in the house of representatives this July to essentially remove those oil lease sales from the tax bill basically. Um, and we need it to pass the house of representatives first. Um, so we need every representative from every state, you know, to see the value of protecting the Arctic refuge, um, to prevent oil extraction. And, um, there's super easy links. Uh, you can do it with, um, from like my social media or in the show notes, I'm sure you guys will put it. I would love to circle back a bit to hear you talk about kind of your current relationship to like winning or losing or just competitiveness in general. And I guess what motivates this for me is just, I think, all of us who have competitive backgrounds or whatever, we maybe have better or worse or healthier relationships to these things at various times in our lives. And so I'm actually not really asking for some motivational, this is how everyone should relate to these concepts. Yeah. My relationship with winning is pretty detached, and I mentioned it earlier. I'm, I guess, I have a baseline confidence of my competitiveness, and anyone who knows me really well thinks it's actually disgusting how competitive I am. So, <laughs> I'm like never worried about not being competitive when I want to be. Like I'm, I've, I'm lucky that I can always tap into those to those wells. Um, but ever since college and especially since working with my coach David Roach um who who is an amazing amazing coach uh I've just really focused on the process like especially with ultra running or or any any big race I don't care if you're signing up for a half marathon or a 5k like ultimately what matters is how you get to the starting line and the work you put in because that's the whole point of running is the day to day you know um running requires an incredible amount of consistency to be, to be good or your best. Um, and, and so I feel, I honestly feel pretty Buddhist about it. Um, and it's extra nice being a professional runner. My sponsor, my sponsor Patagonia doesn't require me to race at any level. And that has taken so much financial stress off me. I'm not running for bonuses. I, I think if other brands did that, it would, you know, the world would be a better place. Runners would be a lot happier and, and less stressed. Um, so every time I'm, I'm racing today at this point in my life, it's only cause I want to be there. Um, 
And ultimately it's because I like, I love running every single day or, you know, I, I actually take one day off a week, but you know, it's the process. Like I just, I love getting out there and having a variety of runs and being able to explore, um, being able to run while traveling is like such a gift, you know, like we don't need anything special. All we need is a pair of shoes. So I think if people focus on the process more, it will allow for that day of race. You can't really lose. Even if you DNF, like, well, how were the prior six months leading up to that race? You know, um, I think it's a little bit safer and healthier. And ultimately, you know, we want to think about our place as runners in the world. Like, what are we doing to actually better the world? And if we're so focused on our races and our finishes, like we're not going to, we're not going to be, we're not going to be making the world a better place. Like we need to be thinking bigger and, and how we're acting every single day as a runner. That's sort of my take on it. In regards to the competitive aspect, are you on Strava? I am. Yeah. Does that mess with you? Not at all. I, I knock on wood have not yet let Strava sort of like get into my psyche. I, I find it really inspiring to follow, especially people, I, I, you know, my friends in Boulder just to see where they're running. I'm like, oh, that's a sick loop. I want to do that. Um, and to follow my uh, college friends, you know, I have a bunch of friends who live in New York City. Uh, and just to see them, oh my gosh, it's so crazy. They're running at like 4.30 in the morning in Central Park, like clockwork. And so whenever I feel soft or whenever I need to feel soft, I just look at their Strava's and I'm like, wow, Claire, you are so lame. Like you are not waking up at 4.30 to run laps around Central Park. (laughs) So yeah, I don't, I don't really... I'm not like stalking my competitors race, um, training. I've done that. Obviously I think everyone has, but, um, yeah, it hasn't, it hasn't gotten into my psyche and, um, you know, I, I just hope it doesn't, I don't, I don't think I think about it enough to let it get into my psyche. No, that's good. I think Strava can be a slippery slope if you have the wrong mindset about it. For sure. For sure. I know. I wish there was a, a, a way to, to get people out of that slope. Cause a lot of my friends have talked about it, but uh, it's like, well then if, and if you have a problem with it, you should probably just get off Strava. Yeah. yeah. It's just an app, you know, it's not that important. I just would like you both to know that I'm not on Strava. So <laughs> yep. That's not, this is not an issue of mine. I'm not either Jonathan. Don't okay. worry. Okay. <laughs> okay. Nice. Claire, I think I want to talk a bit about your background and then maybe we'll then go to your future. Grew up in Colorado? Yeah, in suburban Denver. Suburban Denver. When did you start running? Uh, at a young age, but um, I, I did like uh, cross country and track throughout high school. Um, and really started to take it seriously junior year in high school, which was kind of late in terms of like getting recruited for college and things. But uh, I've always played lacrosse and I swam competitively. So, um, yeah, I stayed I stayed busy as a wee as a wee person. Did swimming seem like more of the primary thing or it was on par with lacrosse and then this running stuff came about later? Honestly, I always wanted to play lacrosse in college. Like my, my friends were the lacrosse team and, um, 
and I played like, you know, club lacrosse in Colorado. And, and then I kind of stopped growing and realized, oh, I'm way better at running. And, and I discovered the running community and, and fell in love. And it just seemed really obvious. Like, uh, it clicked like with my body and mindset and drive and things. So, so yeah. So you discover this ability and then you start thinking like, man, I want to keep this going and I, I want to run in college. Yeah. Uh, kind of, uh, basically I just started getting recruited. Um, and with running, you don't like actively have to, to pursue that, uh, just cause the times speak for themselves. It's really beautiful in that way. Like college coaches just see how fast you're running. And in my case, it was at altitude, mostly in Colorado. Um, so, you know, then people sort of start calling. So what were some of your opportunities for collegiate running and what did you end up going with? Uh, across the board, you know, from state schools, Colorado, New Mexico, um, to others. Um, I went on officials. Where did I actually I only I Princeton was my first official and within a few weeks after that visit, um I decided I'd go to Princeton. So yeah. Was the decision to go to Princeton how much of it was like, wow, this is a really interesting running situation? Or were you already kind of keyed in to be like, I'm probably gonna meet some interesting people and friends and professors? and just get introduced to um, some important intellectual things. Oh, I was super naive. And I basically, I came back from that official and was like, whoa, those girls are psychopaths. <laughs> and, you know, they ended up being my some of my best friends. But uh, this official was just insane. You know, you run, you're like, oh, I'm like starving. And I would just go straight to the, you know, the party and barely sleeping and then a log run on Sunday morning. And I'm like, and everyone's studying like in between all of this. And I'm like, hell no, <laughs> am I doing that? Like I'm exhausted. And then, um, but then my dad was like, well, Claire, it doesn't make sense for you not to go there. Like, and it wasn't, it was definitely my decision, but I got pretty good financial aid there. Um, and so like it financially made sense. Um, uh, and, and like, I didn't think uh, about it that hard. Like, I think if I had really thought about it that much more, maybe I would have gone somewhere else, but it was just like, okay, it's one of the best schools in the country. Makes sense. I guess I'll just send it and see if I ever sleep. Like, <laughs> so is this a tendency for you of like your best decisions are made on like the more whim, like, yeah, that seems like smart. I'll do it. Honestly. Yeah. I guess in hindsight, <laughs> It makes sense. Like I didn't, I made a very, very rash decision to, while I was at Princeton to apply for an internship doing coral reef research in Bermuda. Um, Cause I was injured at the time, my sophomore year. And I was like, Oh, like I'm going to quit running. Like I'm so sick of being injured. And my non-runner friends were like, yeah, just like go to Bermuda and like, <laughs> be on water. And it's like, okay. And I did it. And I got this internship. And then that like dictated the next four years of my life. <laughs> Cause I was studying coral reefs <laughs> and I fell in love with the Marine world and it like completely opened my eyes to climate change. And, um, so yeah, I guess, you know, it sounds reckless and, and somewhat romanticized and it, it wasn't that 
pretty and I don't know. So who knows? (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk about this collegiate running career of yours. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It was nothing to call home about. That's for sure. Um, (laughs) Comparatively, I was a much better runner in high school than I was in college. Um, I, I mean, I was like, I made it to nationals on, uh, like our cross country team my senior year. Um, but I was injured, I think for like, I don't know, five out of my 12 seasons, you're, you're literally racing year round. You do cross country in the fall, indoor track in the winter, spring and outdoor track in the spring. Um, and yeah, I just had a slew of injuries. Um, you know, I, I ran like, okay, but I never made it to nationals as an individual. And that's sort of like the, the base litmus for a D1 collegiate runner. If you've like done pretty well, you, it means you're making it to regionals or nationals, um, in like an individual event. So, um, yeah, it was, it was kind of dark in certain times. Like I definitely didn't eat enough, um, at certain times and like didn't value sleep or, or like health. Um, but, but I also came out, I think on top in terms of I'm still running today. (laughs) What distances did you run? Uh, so cross country is a 6k and then in an indoor track, I ran 1500 or the mile, um, an outdoor track. I did steeplechase, which (laughs) I was a really bad steeplechaser, which is funny (laughs) because like I do trail running now, but I just like couldn't nail water jumps to save my life. Uh, and I just would race, race, race. My coach raced me a lot. Um, and just like, yeah, wow, you're really mediocre, Claire. <laughs> <laughs> and then just race you more. Like I dabbled in the 1500. Like I don't have a bad 1500 PR, like I think four, like high 420s. Um, but, and the 5K, but you know, it's, it's, it's funny when, if you don't specialize in the right event in college, you're just not going to, you know, be an all-star. So it was, it was good though. I I made most of my closest friends in college on the team and, you know, as any person can say about their core groups in college, it's, it's a beautiful thing. So what year is it that you get out of Princeton? Uh, 2014. My God, if my numbers are right, Aren't you doing things like winning the Leadville 100 in 2016? Yeah, that is correct. So talk to me about this period between getting out of college. What happens in the next two years? Uh, Well, I moved to Thailand three days after graduating, um, straight from New Jersey to southern Thailand on a teaching (laughs) fellowship. Um, And I spent most of the next year and a half, almost like basically, well, let's see, 2014. Yeah. Um, in Thailand, in Southeast Asia. Um, so I taught English for a year and then I went back in 2015, um, on a grant to teach my students how to swim. A lot of them didn't know it has swim. It was really, really sad. Um, even though they lived on the beach and things, uh, so, and I traveled extensively around Southeast Asia with some really close friends. Um, it was like a super formative time in my life. And I also did my first ultra then 
in Northern Thailand in the Golden Triangle. I signed up on a whim for this 50 mile race because I was just disenchanted with like how I ended my collegiate running. And uh, basically like when I got Wi-Fi one day when I was teaching in this tiny village, um, I was like, oh, I could do this like 50 mile race. That seems cool. Like, why not? And um, and so I've backpacked with friends around Myanmar in the few weeks leading up to this race. <laughs> Honestly, not that dissimilar to the Arctic uh. trip when I think about it. And and then this this first ultra just blew my mind. I was like, oh, my gosh, I am in love with this sport. This is so weird. This is the weirdest sport <laughs> on planet Earth. I'm so into it. I love how much like the fueling element has to do with it because I was just eating like Thai delicacies, like sticky rice and things. Um, and then I moved to back to the U.S. in 2016 in like the winter in January. And then, yeah, it was that August that I won Leadville. <laughs> so a quick transition from the college running, but it seems like it's been going really well. You you mentioned the eating part. And um, I think a lot of people like know, especially with your Leadville experience, that you were eating um, frosting. <laughs> Do you want to talk? Has that changed? Are you still a frosting gal? Let's... What's new there? <laughs> um, when I ran Leadville, I was super broke. I just quit my job as a as a medical scribe in emergency rooms because I gave up <laughs> my dreams of being a doctor. And I was like, you know, it's and buying fifty gels for like a buck a piece was just not in my wheelhouse at that time in my life. And so yeah. it's like, oh, I could just buy one. Um, one tub of frosting and it's like basically the same contents and I love frosting. Uh, <laughs> and, and honestly, my crew was so clueless, like well, not, <laughs> not the Boulder people, they were amazing, but like my family, oh my gosh, yeah. they're like, yeah, this makes sense to like put frosting on a spoon <laughs> and just hand it to her. And then in hindsight, you know, I find out Leadville race series is like tweeting, like who is this girl eating frosting in the lead? <laughs> And since then, I've been blessed to um, have a, a nutrition sponsor, Honey Stinger. That, so, and I really like eating honey in a race. So um, I have I have moved on to gels. Um, but it's not to say I, I did buy a tub of frosting before Western States and had the night before the race this year. <laughs> I really think you need to come out with a book with a very serious name called like the definitive blueprint for ultra running training. And then we just reverse engineer all the stuff you've done. It's like, first of all, do an internship in college, you know, about coral reefs and then eat a lot of frosting. Always go to Anwar before a big race that you've been, you know, really focused on. One of my best friends has said, she's like, I think you need to write a guidebook there on, um, cause actually I, or on my road trips, I just like make really ridiculous. I've just made some bad decisions that <laughs> haven't turned out as well that I won't go into here. Really? You not even one. Okay. So my last road trip, this was actually right before I went to the Arctic. I was on a 10 day road trip to Joshua tree. Um, and then obviously I had to go to Idaho, which, you know, so Colorado to Southern California to Idaho, it's a really obvious route for one to take. <laughs> like, whoa, that was a lot of driving. And, um, and it was, and I did a race in Idaho 
on the last day of like this 10 day, I was sleeping out of my Prius the whole time. And, um, and so I'm doing a race in Pocatello. I'm so exhausted. And, and I'm like, I just have to go home. Like I have to go home, prepare for Alaska. And so I got this energy drink at a gas station in Idaho called Bang, B-A-N-G, Bang. Have you guys heard of Bang? Yeah, they're, they're like dangerous. Dude, yeah, you have to be 18 to buy it. <laughs> <laughs> they're There's not good for you. 100 milligrams of Bang or of caffeine. Oh my god! <laughs> and so my dinner was was a bang that, and it was like rainbow unicorn flavored. It was delicious, <laughs> and a giant king size bag of spicy Cheeto or spicy jalapeno Cheetos. And um and and as I'm drinking this bang, I'm like, you know, you it basically makes you lose your appetite. And so all I had were these Cheetos to eat. I had the most fitful night's sleep of my life. I went to the <laughs> wrong side the red desert in Wyoming. I was supposed to go run in the red desert the next day for like a scouting trip. And I was like three hours away from, from where I was supposed to be oh, no. <laughs> like off of I in Wyoming. And I just wake up and I was like, screw it. I'm just going home. And of course I'm like, I'm just like having a great time driving home. I'm excited to be home and I get a speeding ticket after, and I wasn't even going that fast. I was going like I don't know, nine over. I wasn't being dangerous. I'm driving a freaking Prius like in Wyoming. And and that was the end to my, my trip. You drive, you know, 2000 miles, you're two hours away from home and you get a speeding ticket. And I totally blame the bang because I was just like super jittery at the wheel. <laughs> All hopped up on bang. Gotta be careful. Sure, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's a, that's a, a safe story. <laughs> I don't condone for the record it's not it's not chill I, I'm honestly a very safe driver <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I believe you but we'll just move on yeah, yeah. <laughs> to close let's talk a bit about the future while you have I think proven in this conversation that you are somebody who's willing to take a quick hard left turn it's still I'd still be curious to hear you talk a bit about how you sort of see these uh, horizons. Yeah, uh, my biggest overarching guiding light is just doing everything I can to make sure humanity doesn't like light this earth more on fire. And in the day to day, that means being involved with Colorado politics, um, you know, American politics, like we need government action to combat climate change. And so I'm like, oh, with my small platform in this niche sport of ultra running, at least the least I can do is, is, is help educate and, um, you know, inspire and get people stoked to like be part of the solution in this climate crisis. Um, so what that looks like on paper, I'm not exactly sure, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, I, I hope to continue racing and, and um, looking at different FKTs and, and just seeing as much as the world as I can um, while offsetting my, my travel. Uh, <laughs> you know, I think the biggest goal is to just stay healthy and, and grateful and, you know, grounded. Yeah, that sounds pretty, um, pretty cliche, but sometimes it's, it's okay to be cliche, right? <laughs> yeah, well, and again, I, I, I'm going to go out on a limb here and it, I think it sounds like given your entire life course so far, it sounds like 
remaining open, you know, when the unexpected door opens for you, being willing to say, cool, this is when I deviate from a, maybe a set course. And it sounds like that's served you pretty well so far. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I hope I still have the balls to, you know, take those left turns. <laughs> um, I think working with Patagonia is, is definitely, I won't, I, I'll maintain an, an air of radicalness and um, ability to take risks. I'm so, so inspired by the people I work with at Patagonia that, yeah, I don't think I'll, I'll lose that. Well, Claire, this has been a real pleasure. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And um, yeah, are you guys based? Where are you guys based? We're in Crested Butte. Awesome. Okay, so Scott Tipton is your rep, and he is a nightmare. So uh, be sure to sign that that Arctic um, the link. I'll, I'll text it to you, Jonathan. He's just been continuously reelected, and he actually he literally needs to get out so badly. Like he represents the most ski resorts in the state of Colorado, and he won't meet with any. Like he wouldn't meet with the CEO of Aspen to talk about climate change. Wow everyone living on the Western slope, like there's so many outdoor advocates, like you guys are the power to, to switch that seat. Truly. Yeah. I will legit send him an email today. Thank you also for all you're doing with, you know, getting the trail running community involved in environmental work. Cause I mean, just your presence with all of it has been huge. And I know it's a niche community, but your voice is definitely heard there. So thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks, Maddie. Together we can do it. Excellent. Hey, really, this has been super fun. Love to do it again sometime down the line, but uh, mostly I'm just a big fan. <laughs> Thank you. I really appreciate your guys' support. Happy Tuesday. Happy Tuesday. <laughs> Have a good day, Claire. Thanks. That's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. Thanks to Claire for the conversation. And again, we would encourage you now to text 40649 to submit a comment to protect the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, or you can follow the link in the show notes to this episode to learn more. Again, I already submitted a note to my representative. It is a very quick and simple thing to do, and it is also an important thing to do. So text 40649 to learn more and to submit a comment now. And again, if you enjoyed this conversation, I would encourage you to check out and subscribe to our Blister Running podcast, Off the Couch. You can find Off the Couch on the Blister website or wherever you get your podcasts. And as we like to say, we kind of think of it as a running podcast for normal people, or maybe that means anybody who actually kind of hates running a lot of the time. Anyway, see what you think. But we've already had a number of conversations that I think a lot of you who listen to the Blister podcast are going to enjoy. Finally, I want to say thanks to Luke Alley for producing this episode. Thanks to Maddie Hart for co-hosting this conversation with me. And thanks to you for listening. Now please go text 40649 to learn more about the Arctic Refuge and to take some action. Thank you, and we'll talk to you again next week.